Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Previously on the Kaleidocast. It is a moment of well-earned peace in a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes. Thanks to the heroic efforts of Professor Calliope DeGamowitz and James Earl King II, and the self-sacrifice of one senior junior lecturer Sam Spellingbound, the multiverse has been saved from the brief and poorly edited reign of the tyrannical Oversheen. Our heroes, those who remain, have returned to their lives and all seems well but something much more sinister lurks at the periphery, ready, waiting, eager to lay waste not only to the world, not only the universe, but existence itself. Now this, this is the perfect night. I've got my armchair, I've got my speaker system, and some smooth tubes. There's not an egghead academic around for miles, and I finally got my strawberry daiquiri chilling the fridge. Now, for the first taste. Hey, what the? Why are my eggs frying in the fridge? Hello, King! Ah! Spellingbound! Yes, it is I, Sam Spellingbound, but not the one you have known. Oh, I don't care! Just get out of my fridge! I think I shall manifest whoever I wish, James Earl King II, for you see I have come to put an end to everything! <laughs> okay, there's, there's no way. There's no way. Let me just... Yeah, hello. I'd like to order... My fridge! God damn it, why are you here? Surely you must have learned by now that when one Spellman dies in your universe... Yeah, yeah, I know. Another must take its place. The Gamowitz and Overstreet worked that out last season. I mean, why are you here renovating my kitchen, you Dr. Demented? It's become something of a pattern, hasn't it? Spelling bound after spelling bound, meeting ever more gruesome ends, on and on forever? Well, not this time, King. This time, I brought friends! Whoa, jeez! Are those stories? Stories of destruction, heralding the end of all things. The Omniverse awakens, King. 
when it turns its eye upon your reality, all will be one. All will be one, King! All right, where's my broom? Gotcha! What is the Hungry Earth by Carmen Maria Machado? You have any idea how money I can get for this? Oh! It bit me! Come here, you little... The Hungry Earth by Carmen Maria Machado Read by Tony Perry The last carnival in human history was in Miami. It became the last carnival because Gilberto refused to switch to the devices. Imagine downloading popcorn, he wheezed. Foolish! Those ugly terminals! No ambient smells! The birdmen offered him centers for half price. They would pump the air full of fat butter smells and fried dough smells, they promised. He refused again. How do you even shove food through those tubes anyway? Gilberto was unclear on the mechanics of computers, even on a good day. The birdmen shifted from foot to foot, and one of them muttered something about electricity. Gilberto ignored them. He'd been a small boy when Castro had taken power and did not respond well to threats, no matter how much they were packaged as helpful suggestion. Behind him, the thin gold filament of a funhouse bulb went bright as a dying star and then blue. The daylight dimmed incrementally around us, and the fabric of the emerging sky was matte and black. The moons of the birdmen's faces waned into half-shadow. Darkness pooled around the curve of their beaks. The day when a carnival uses those stupid things. Bosh, Gilberto said. Strip the ghost from my bones. I embrace the future as heartily as the next man, but this? <laughs> Strip the ghost from my bones. He chuckled a little to himself, probably imagining carnival patrons plugged into the machines like rows of toasters. Perhaps if he had seen the silver knives of the birdmen, he would not have said this twice, or even once. The birdmen moved quickly and obliged him. And after he fell to earth, there was nothing else to say. A carney's life was defined by fear of extinction. We buried him, and we ran. Many years after that last Ferris wheel came down, when the terminals were everywhere and the fields were permanently fallow, I sat in a restaurant in Little Havana. This was in the final wave, and the nauseating fog of hunger defined my days. With trembling fingers, I hooked the jack into my neck. Somewhere in a distant server, a fixed amount of credit left my account and entered another. Around me, other people were hooked in and silent. The only sound in the room was the thin, barely perceptible hum of many machines running at once. The terminals filled me with the nutrients that I technically needed. I was a cavernous and empty well, and they tipped a thimble full of water into my depths. The splices did not intend for this to happen, not in this way. They say this as a matter of propaganda, though I think I believe them. After we created them, and after they freed themselves, they could have killed us outright, but they did not. They just wanted us passive. 
How could we blame them? In the beginning, the birdmen were the foot soldiers, the enforcers. The cowmen were wiser than we had previously supposed. What we had attributed to stupidity was actually a kind of deliberate thoughtfulness that most humans did not possess. So they made up the majority of the splice governing body. The pigmen became radicals and in the early days blew up the terminals with dynamite before they realized we were being phased out anyway and did not need to be slaughtered directly. Of course, they laid waste to our farms and our meatpacking plants. Of course, they tore up and torched the acres of genetically modified crops. Whole states burned. My three sisters fled Miami for the rolling earth of Iowa, but Iowa was a field of fire after. Slow starvation was a kind of transcendent experience. So I was certain there at the terminal in Little Havana that I saw Gilberto moving through the sea of people like they were a field of wheat, though I had never seen a field of wheat. And I had not seen Gilberto since my teenage days as brake boy and ticket taker and sweeper of trash. The Gilberto vision came to me. How have you survived, Mario? he asked me. I uh, uh, do not know, I said. He pressed his thumb into the center of my forehead. Wake up, Mario, wake! I closed my eyes and opened them. And I was again in this room of humans, completely alone. A woman fell off her chair. The jack popped out of her neck and the room was awash in her moans. I slumped back in my seat, my arms resting in my lap, the base of my skull cradled in a soft brace. I could twitch my fingers a little, and I found myself tapping out the rhythms I overheard on the leg of my pants. The cycles of rain that struck the roof and floor-to-ceiling window panes, the syncopated sound of human breaths, even the uneven sounds from the woman who had fallen and could not stand. No one lifted from the chairs. I remembered a howling storm that tore over the carnival in the weeks before the birdman came. The rain drummed against the main tent, and we all sat and watched the giant structure around us inhale and exhale like it was alive, as if we were resting in the lungs of a giant beast. When I touched the leathery canvas and pulled my hand away, beads of water slid down my fingers. The whole place smelled like wet animals and hay and human sweat. Celia, one of the acrobats, held me tightly against the bony arc of her ribcage, her heart banging around like a terrified bird, quietly shushing me, even though it was really her own fears she was trying to soothe away. Thunder slit open the seams of the air. Lightning threw our faces into relief, unevenly, like we were watching a badly joined film strip. The horses panicked and gouged curls of wood out of their stalls with their flailing hooves. There in the restaurant, Celia dead, Gilberto dead, the horses freed by the birdmen. A gust of wind blew an outdoor chair into the long glass window that faced the street. It went thickly veined with cracks and then shattered. No one moved. Behind my fluttering lids, I saw the birdmen again, the first time they came. How I wanted nothing more than to touch them and 
how the tallest of them flinched away from my dry fingers. Then darkness. Then Gilberto's hoarse laugh. Then silver knives. The carnival tents burning. A sheet-wrapped body thudding against the packed dirt of a shallow hole. Darkness again. I might have had a fever. I might have been there for two days or fifty. The fallen woman's moans of hunger went silent. Maybe it was only a few hours. I do not know. A deer, a full deer, not a splice, picked its way through the glass pieces. The room of people, curiously touching her black nose to us and to the terminals. Head dip. Tap. A thin, gentle face so close I could see the high cheekbones, the liquid curve of her eyes. Stretched neck. Tap. No fear. Tap. Tap. Of course, we all died, eventually. People's credit ran dry, and anyway, the human body is not meant to have nutrients downloaded into it. Or uploaded. The mechanics of the machines were never clear to me, or anyone. As the last crop of humans failed... The splices said to us via the terminal screens, We are sorry. This is part of the natural cycle. It was always supposed to happen this way. A normal flux. Evolution. The message would scroll and then blink out, and then scroll again, over and over. I stopped reading it, after a while. For those of us with enough credit... Credit that was both useless and now saved us, though, to what end? We remained in the place we had last sat down, alive and aware, but motionless. In this way, we saw the cowmen and pigmen and birdmen, loosed of their need to pretend to be like us, return to nature. They shed their clothes and took to the outside world. As Grass pressed up between blocks of pavement and trees split apart the streets and buildings. The splices lived there. They rollicked and pulled plants up with their teeth. They made sounds that may have been laughter. They reminded me, in the dim hallways of my memory, of the carnival freaks. The bearded woman who had trimmed my hair and slipped me butterscotch that I would click against my teeth. The melted man who had shown me how to throw a knife and pin a butterfly. The splice's backwards knees allowed them to lollop thunderously across the earth like horses, but sometimes I saw them reading. Those of us who were still alive did not fight what was coming. The footfall of our hearts did not quicken when green tendrils curled around us, grew into us, took what they needed. Where the soy corn and hydroponic lettuce melons had once grown, where we had built our cities, nature reclaimed her skin. We humans were once staggered above and beneath each other, but no longer. She, the earth, could not tell. She reached vines and microorganisms into the buildings and the houses and the land that had once sustained us. She reached into us, centuries hungry. She choked us down. 
Carmen Maria Machado is the author of the best-selling memoir in the Dreamhouse and the short story collection Her Body and Other Parties. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the Bard Fiction Prize, the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Nonfiction, the Brooklyn Public Library Literature Prize, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the National Book Critic Circle's John Leonard Prize. In 2018, the New York Times listed her body and other parties as a member of the New Vanguard, one of the 15 remarkable books by women that are shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. Her essays, fiction, and criticism have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Granta, Vogue, This American Life, Harper's Bazaar, Tin House, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, The Believer, Guernica, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, Best American Non-Required Reading, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from the Iowa's Writers' Workshop and has been awarded fellowships and residencies from the Guggenheim Foundation, Michener Copernicus Foundation, Elizabeth George Foundation, Synthos Foundation, Yaddo, Hedgebrook, and the Malay Colony for the Arts. She is the writer-in-residence at the University of Pennsylvania and lives in Philadelphia with her wife. Tony Perry is an actor and singer-songwriter. He narrated the film Lost and Found and the audio comic The Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. He has performed in English and Yiddish, and he's happy to talk about all things Doctor Who. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Special thanks to Gary Benjamin Holt Jr. You owe me a new fridge, Spellingbound. Oh, I think you've got bigger problems, King. You really ought to have that pipe looked at. You never know what kind of curses these stories are carrying. Preferably a smart fridge. One of those... I'm sorry, did you say curse? I know for a fact you haven't had your Bram Stoker shot this year. Really irresponsible, actually. <laughs> and how could you possibly know that? Oh, we know everything about you. All of yourselves. Even the ones who are witch. <gasps> what? No, that's impossible. No. Which reminds me. Congratulations. You're the first in your local plane of existence to join the Omniverse Incorporated Incorporated LLC. As per the contract you signed. Ooh, leftover sesame chicken. You mind? I, I, I didn't sign a goddamn thing. Oh, but you did. Enough of your other selves across reality joined up with the Omniverse to force a vote. Now you are all bound to the Omniverse's terms and services. Aw, oh, fucking white people. The Omniverse has your data. The metadata. The meta-metadata. And not just you. Calliope DeGamowitz. Brad Overstreet. Fried rice? It's my fried rice. Hand it over. Soon your Professor Mira... Universe? Good, huh? Well, yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, it's... And by good, I mean... You're eating maggots. Ooh! I'm so gross! Disgusting! What? Hmm. So crunchy. Wait, am I a vampire now? Tune in next week. Hey, get back here! You're gonna turn a nice prophet and let ectoplasmic... Yeah, there's more where that came from. Have fun with The Verge of Utopia by Sandra Fink. You might say it's an earth-shattering read. 
Dimension Door. Yeah, you better run. You're the worst spelling bond yet. Vampirism. Psh, psh. Vampirism. What the? My housing deposit! The Verge of Utopia by Sandra Fink Her son Calvin said there were mole people under the city. The city's underbelly was less of a maze of rotting tunnels, he said, and more of a honeycomb, richly layered deeps, one upon another, stretching as far down as the city was tall. Those weren't his exact words. He was only eleven. But he knew things. Real things from all the books he'd salvaged from refuse piles and stacked in his tiny corner. Becca knew her son would never waste his halting words on anything that wasn't provably true. The so-called mole people sounded monstrous, but they were probably just homeless, societies cast asides, maybe tribes of rejects. Normality left a lot to be desired these days. Perhaps they preferred the lost depths where every so often there was a subway station long forgotten or a water tunnel never completed. Squatter's paradise. Calvin would delight in plumbing that habitat which he could likely navigate with just a flashlight and a backpack to meet his fellows, maybe bring them gifts. He was a resourceful boy who longed for places darker where verified monsters lurking in the shadows was just Wednesday. "'Everything counted?' asked Bruce. Bruce was the RN first assistant who waved his gloved fingers over Becca's carefully guarded stainless steel trays like he might conjure a forgotten germ. Becca was a scrub today and knew her thoughts should be glued to the surgery not chasing hidden worlds and mole people. Counted, she affirmed. No matter how slapped together the whole affair, the surgery was a highly complex procedure. It was also a profitable, much publicized prospective medical miracle, and she needed the gig. I assume you're scrubbed in? she asked. Clean as a whistle, Bruce answered, his hands raised above his elbows. Docs are scrubbing in now. I can see your hair, she said with a smile. You forgot how to don a surgical cap? It's been a year since I did a surgery, he admitted with a self-conscious twitch. Or had a haircut. I know, me too, she admitted back. But this is a big one. The craniopagus twins, they were due to divide that day, were monstrously old to be still joined at the head. Neither twin, at eleven years old, each Calvin's age, had ever stood on her own two feet. In addition to numerous other unlucky physical irregularities, they were joined at the very tops of their skulls, an official lost cause, and not much was official any more. A prominent grandmother was determined to correct their predominant defect, no matter the cost, financial or otherwise, in a bizarre effort to push them into what remained of polite society. Becca's opinion on that was neither sought nor welcome. 
Her limited role in today's rare exercise of conventional medicine was low investment, high payoff, and simple. All she had to do was have the right tools clean and ready and maintain the sterile area. It was a straightforward mission only slightly complicated by the not-rare challenge of a bona fide nuclear alert. Or Wednesday. A year ago, we would have been sheltering in, said Bruce. They called shelter inns too many times, countered Becca. Remembering duct-taping herself, Pete, and Calvin in their tiny windowless bathroom for hours or days with nothing but stored water and a bag of trail mix. Everyone stopped paying attention. Now we kid ourselves, remaining near just to feel like we're doing something as if crossing our fingers doesn't check the same box. During a remain near notice, idiotic and unenforceable, she was supposed to be no more than twenty minutes from home, not up in the blank nothing world of North Manhattan. While she was never without the go-bag that Calvin made for her, his soft, pale face bent over soaked pamphlets he'd fetched from street corners and abandoned storefronts, she and Pete had made their peace with the real world. They could not afford to miss gigs, not if they wanted to feed to their son anything more than twice-boiled bone broth. Calvin was at school in Brooklyn. Pete was home just blocks away, tuned in to the live streams, or he better be. By now, neither Calvin's school nor any of their various employers were especially worried about one more dramatic news day. Scheduling around Remain Nears was another lost cause. In fact, the whole surgical dog and pony show had probably been on hold for a Remain Near. That was probably the only time whatever shady connection at the facility could get them into this weirdly gleaming high-tech operating theater, where she lined up sponges and damp-dusted needles. The boxy functional room was its own honeycomb, an all-white, windowless, square-tiled cell, as straight-edged, sanitized, and artificially lit as Calvin's paradise was undoubtedly filthy. If Calvin imagined himself a mole person, then she elected herself a bee, constantly clean and busy, in focused motion on ordered missions, tools and instruments perfect and ready to deploy. Well, yeah, it's orange, said Bruce, glancing at the vintage flat screen mounted on a wall well outside the sterile area. How many times has it been orange? I've lost count she said. The screen silently displayed the color-coded alert over headlines of the day because they had to. It was a highly irregular setup. They weren't supposed to pay attention. Becca hoped against any news of the operation itself, but it was a popular story for when everyone got tired of Korea and New France. Everything went to shit with the bees she added. And the glaciers, Bruce muttered, hovering with his hands still raised, fingers restless like he wondered just how long it took surgeons to scrub in. Pete says the world is so fucked, she said. It's the verge of freaking utopia. 
that's a new one, Bruce laughed. Well, the rules are looser, that's for sure. We can hustle for a buck while there's still printed money, she replied, suddenly keen to pitch an upside, and hoard water and canned goods for when there isn't. Our building is abandoned and rent-free, moldy, but it's practically waterfront now. The Gowanus is cleaner, I heard, he said. For no reason I can guess, she agreed. My son only goes to school half-time. He talks so much more, and... Are we ready for the patients? scolded the circulating nurse who had just pushed importantly into the room from the hallway. Paperwork is all set and the surgical team expected stat. Ready, said Becca. I wonder what extinction event turns it red, Bruce whispered menacingly while the CN filed paperwork in a satchel against the wall. He referred to the neck shade up, that on-the-nose color they would probably be too busy getting swallowed by tsunamis or mushroom clouds to ever actually see. The rapture? she joked. Everyone's attention for the timeout, please. Bitched the CN, her eyes bloodshot over her paper mask. Three orderlies rolled the anesthetized patients through the room's far doors on a jerry-rigged double gurney. Five doctors swept through the swinging doors of the scrub room, all bright blue in their bulky gowns, all gloved hands raised. The group ostensibly included a neurosurgeon, a plastic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, and whoever else could be secured on short notice. They were followed by as many specialized nurses who all took their posts under the blinding LED light that hovered like a UFO over the double-long operating table. The gurney rolled to a stop alongside holding the naked twins. They looked like anemic aliens. Becca held her spot, her only job, to keep it well-supplied and pretty to mitigate the reality of sawing bodies in two. Patient's identity, began the head surgeon. Jane and Edith Slade, answered the CN, her voice as husky as if she had a secret hoard of smokes stashed somewhere. Consent affirmed, Grandma is in the waiting area. We've got some muscle to keep that witch out of here? The surgeon asked, winking. Affirmative, said the CN. It took the whole team, almost, to pat-slide the joined girls from the journey to the table. Bruce got busy prepping and draping. Everyone seemed a little rushed, a little eager to get it done, though the complex surgery would demand patience and undoubtedly outlast the alert still reported soundlessly and endlessly on the screen behind. Becca wondered if the media would get bored and run their fluff piece about a set of parents whose daughters were joined at the head, and who opposed their separation, who, in fact, fought ceaselessly for their given configuration, only for the relentless and moneyed grandma to get them declared unfit. That and a suitcase full of cash. Seriously not ten feet away, barely outside the sterile area. And here lay two powerless eleven-year-olds flat on their backs, their joined heads shaved and inked. I see the surgical site is correctly marked, 
said the head surgeon, his eyes eager if drawn. So no one thinks we're dividing them at the elbows. The fused heads were bulbous, bluish, one quite a bit larger than the other. One twin quite a bit larger than the other. A swollen copy of the miniature sister who was glued to the top of her head like a parasite. Becca felt bad for the parents. Somewhere, elsewhere, detained. Why must they rearrange their daughters to fit the world? Why not rearrange the world to fit their daughters? And yet, was it fair to doom one's children to lie on their backs for a decade? Her mind wandered to Calvin and his teachers, the way they whispered with her and Pete about her son's lonely obsessions, the below-ground forever flooding railroad tracks, the descending tunnels and the mole people, the way she nodded along and jotted notes. But really, in these fraught end times, was Calvin going to stop making go-bags to kick cans with other children? Stop tallying the shrinking population to have an actual conversation? It was useless waiting for a perfect world, but ideas about what was acceptable were all over the map. Like remain nears like the ongoing curfew at an economy respecting 12 a.m., like this bankrupt hospital, this immaculate, windowless harbor dumping resources on a few while the masses stockpiled home remedies and let broken bones heal themselves. Bleeding is our biggest worry, said the head surgeon. There are a lot of veins to separate. We need to stay on our toes with the electrocautery. Bruce was intubating the little twin when the bigger one's eyes flicked wide open. As round as bowls over the mask that covered the rest of her face, they stared right at Becca, pale blue like periwinkle. Impossible, thought Becca, staring back for lengthening heartbeats, unable to move or peel her eyes away. When she finally blinked, she saw that no. The child's eyes were closed. Nurse, asked the head surgeon for what sounded like not the first time. Everything is sterile? Sterility was verified, she answered, feeling the blood rush from her heart up to her cheeks. I, I have no special concerns. Did she see that? Were they properly sedated? Should she tell someone? A feeling of shame drenched her like warm water, not for being distracted, not for hallucinating ahead of a major surgery, no, for being a part of this. Her eyes rested again on the twins' masked drape and deeply sleeping. The pale swell of their connected heads was less ugly than unearthly. The sisters were less hideous than miraculous, fairies risen from the underworld, their joined bodies vaguely resembling question marks were something else, something never meant to stand on feet. She could not stop thinking of those periwinkle eyes. She turned just a bit, vaguely hoping to get the attention of the CN to request they check the anesthesia or just get herself excused from the surgery, but 
The Sien already stood right there facing her, inside the sterile area. They had this, she said to Becca, along with a withering look as if she knew who to blame. She held a delicate light blue comb, periwinkle, just like the eyes wrapped in a loose surgical glove. One of them must have been holding it. It was on the floor by the door. The CN plopped the comb right into the deep pocket of Becca's smock with a hard look that dared her to do anything about it. So much for the sterile area. Fuck. Becca's eyes went briefly to the suitcase full of cash. She pivoted gently back. She remembered, unfondly, Calvin's brave, soft face when she and Pete could not beg, borrow, or steal enough roof garden produce to keep him fed. The dog and pony show must go on. Here she stood, sheeting finalized, essential imaging functional, on the brink of disaster or the verge of utopia. In this sanitized no place they would perform their miracle, unmonster these two. For the money. Bruce's gloved hand applied the topical antiseptic. Becca's extended the surgeon's scalpel, reflectively bright. Sterile? Razor sharp, at least. No one seemed to breathe as he made the first silent cut. A drop of bright blue-red blood sprang out as though it was glad to break free. And though she should not have been looking... Becca saw the orange turn to red out of the corner of her right eye, along with a flash of all-caps headlines. Someone else must have noticed, because a technician bumped her. They collided hip to hip. Becca felt the already-forgotten blue comb in her pocket snap. Two pieces lightly bounced as Bruce's eyes flicked up. They shot to the screen for only a moment. No one else broke focus. The blinking equipment hummed and hissed, but she thought the surgeon's hand shook. Calvin was at school. What did the school do at Red? It was undoubtedly on some handout she should have signed, keeping a straight face unsure if the moment had arrived to bolt and hope for working subways she could not help but wonder. What finally ends the world? Today? This crowd? Was this humanity's finale, after all the generations of humans, all the airplanes and railroads, did it all end with us? Retractor, said the surgeon, like it was a regular Wednesday. Becca supplied it, a layer of sweat cooling her skin. She had to give him credit. He was so laser-focused, the alert could have been baby blue. She remembered her fear of the first orange alert and how the goalposts kept moving. This was probably just the first of many red alerts bound to plague them. The surgeons cut and retracted perhaps a little faster, but with ruthless precision, slowly creating a gruesome opening all the way around, a bloody border dividing one sister from another. More surgeons moved in, gloved hands busy, meticulously sorting the maze of veins, cutting here, zapping there, bent on that big, bony object they were intent on taking apart. 
They'd need a cranial drill for that, and it felt like hours had passed when Becca had it on the ready on request. Powerful, sharp. Sterile? Who knew? Stabilize the necks, said the head surgeon. Go easy. The air itself seemed to buzz as they drilled to the joined skulls open, pried them apart, methodically exposing, as expected, the sleeping brain of the smaller head, the vulnerable one. It seemed to almost pulse a funny shade of pale blue. It was the last thing Becca saw before the blackout. The chip and whir of the machinery she did not even know she heard was suddenly gone. Generators? barked to the head surgeon, otherwise cool. In only a moment, they kicked in. What finally ends the world? It was foolish to consider, but she thought about them and their cuts. No, that first cut, that little reversible wound, that slippery slope, that violation, and then to push senselessly beyond until the damage was total. To persist in wretchedness. The respirator's on the blink said Bruce. The generators must have been faulty, no surprise, because the lights, the monitors, flashed and stuttered. The flat screen on the wall went off and back on, a strobe of alarmed talking heads and empty anchors chairs. Bruce's eyes flashed greenish. The CN backed out of the sterile area. She must have been chewing her cheeks raw by the up-and-down bounce of her mask. The head surgeon looked like he was reliving his first day of kindergarten as the infamous grandmother shoved suddenly through the outside door with three bulky nurses in tow. "'How much money do I need?' she bellowed like a demon fresh from hell. "'To find a functioning hospital!' "'It's a red alert, ma'am,' replied the surgeon crisply. "'Way above my pay grade.' Priority went to the smaller girl, the one less likely to survive. The bulky nurses regrouped to restrain Grandma while the monumentally distracted technicians, hands all shaking now, pried the twins apart. Becca's own hands shook as she helped to separate the two tables. The team slid them carefully separate. The staff split as choreographed, just as the generators failed in a defeated fade to black like a mortal exhalation. Her last look at the flat screen showed only a blank, black maw. You want more money? screamed the grandmother as they dragged her out of the door. To buy working generators? What do they do on red at school? A horrific rumble rocked the building, swaying in her surgical clogs, one hand still hovering over her trays. Becca's mind went to her packed lunch, her go-bag, lost somewhere in the dark. Blind doctors and nurses practically trampled her, circling the table, dropping any pretense on behalf of their patients. There was no sound from the operating table, not one supportive chirp or gurgle. What was Calvin doing? What was he thinking? What would Pete do? 
What did they do at school? Dim light flashed repeatedly as the entire team fled through the heavy outside door, body-slamming Grandma, abandoning their charges without a thought, just like Becca had abandoned hers. On an impulse, she turned and grabbed a twin, the closest one, the open-eye one. She scooped her right up, though the child was heavy, lopsided, and half-headed. If she couldn't help Calvin, she could help the nearest kid handy. She yanked the ivies clean out. She extubated the poor thing in the half-dark. Way too fast. Not safe. Not clean at all. Calvin was probably somewhere explaining cascading consequences at that very moment, lecturing his terrified classmates and teachers about the importance of a go-bag. And there it was, its long handle meeting her fingers in the dark, ready for her free hand right where she'd left it, near an exit, just like Calvin told her. A ghastly shake almost threw her off her feet as she yanked open the heavy door, the ungainly child's feet banging her shins. Far too old for that surgery, she thought, watching the hell-bent grandmother tussle with the doctors and nurses in the hallway over the suitcase full of cash. Far too old. The old lady spun to Becca with a madwoman's eyes while the CN tried idiotically to work an elevator. The reinforced windows were too high to show anything outside, but there was enough light to see Bruce fly out of the chamber right behind her, holding the other one, the little one, dripping a trail of blood and fluids. "'Where now?' asked Bruce. "'Follow me,' she answered. "'To the tunnels. The honeycomb.' Ignoring the demon lady, she turned and fled, away, down the hall, her surgical clogs peeling stickily from the floor with every step. The building rocked like a giant pushed it. Like a giant pushed her, she slammed into the blank door that opened into the stairwell. Bruce followed. The door swung shut to enclose them in total dark. An unclean vertical tunnel. Bruce's sticky footsteps followed right on hers as she blindly took sharp right turns again and again, down, down, down. If everything was going down, she'd sooner beat the building to the bottom. A thought of Calvin pushed her free hand into the go-bag that dangled from her forearm. She grabbed the miniature flashlight and jammed it in between her teeth, flipping it on just in time to refresh her hold on the kid. At the bottom of a landing, the flashlight's beam hit a G on the wall. Bruce flew out a door and onto a windowed concourse, which was intact, just long enough to bathe him in a sinister glow from outside. "'Follow me!' he cried, frozen in light, the tiny girl swinging over his shoulder. He had barely time to wince before an entire ceiling was suddenly a floor and he was gone. Down came a thought like a bubble in the flood of Becca's panic and despair. It was surely the same word that Calvin was saying somewhere at the same moment. The idea that she could hear him, that they both knew what to do, filled her with an uncanny physical strength. She dodged the twin's bouncing head to keep making sharp right turns as far as the stairs went, where the ghastly rumble faded somewhat. When there were no more stairs, there was a door that opened on the mostly empty parking garage. 
The roving yellow light poured out of her mouth and over the child's limp shoulder to show darkened, abandoned cars, holding infant car seats and half-drunk cups, driving gloves and squishies, relics of this morning's world. It was easy to run down, even if she could barely see. It was where the ramps went. She had only to follow gravity. Two levels, three, four, constantly adjusting her hold on the limp girl. Then a door that burst open the second time she flung herself against it, some utility room, another door, some blank functional hallway, more unlit stairs, more blind forgotten rooms, the narrow beam of her flashlight suggesting a maze of bleachy laundries, pungent garbage rooms, electrical converters, airy spaces rimmed by metal balconies over storage and transit and secrets she could only guess at. Rickety metal steps dove even further into an interconnected web of places she never considered were holding everything up. It was quieter, thankfully, a wondrous endless landscape, this underbelly with closed fast doors hiding what unseen treasures. Stolen art? Safe rooms? The shadow government? Whenever she thought she must have reached its limit, another secret door opened or corner turned, a progressive revelation of darkened stairs, echoing passages, ramps, random toilets, peeling paint, scents of choking mold over oiled steel and concrete. She finally ducked under a low arch and took a crumbling stairwell that descended a steep brick tunnel, trading footsteps with hurrying rats to finally stand surrounded by mildewed walls on a sodden floor with nothing but an iron grate in the middle. A door to something yet lower, but how to pry it open? She laid her broken charge gently in the stinking rot, her one task of the day a laughably epic fail to rifle the go-bag. A flathead screwdriver. Perfect. Thank you, Calvin. She pried loose the grate, nearly dropping it twice to crush her fingers when she heard what sounded like the entire city collapse away overhead. Faster. She heaved it off, pushing the go-bag up over her shoulder, positioning her head to aim the flashlight down the hole. There was a ladder, thank God, stretching endlessly down a black tube to the center of nothing. She scooped up the girl, by now naked except for a few trailing strands of hospital paper, her head mangled, her eyes open in the flashlight's beam, really open, really blue, confused, distraught. Becca squeezed an arm around the twins' bunchy torso, threw the girl's short arm and her long arm over both her own shoulders. The frightened girl might have thought, were she not so weak, so cut open, so partial. The crushing drew faintly louder from above. Becca got herself carefully on the ladder. Calvin would have approved— and somehow scraped the cover back in place, though she nearly severed a finger in the process. Good, solid, reassuring iron was her shield as she climbed slowly down. The girl pinned between her and the ladder, the two of them locked in a tight embrace, cheek to moist cheek, against each rung she clung to. 
The flashlight was halfway down her throat, and choking saliva poured down both sides of her face while her head spun to consider the unknowable distance below. With every iron rung her aching hands gripped, she could only think about how every indecent thing irrevocably opened the only remaining doors, every obstacle shattered ahead a new path. It was a game of follow the broken pieces all the way to glory, cheating the ultimate failure to slip magically at the last moment somewhere. Calvin? Oh, Pete! Though she nearly choked on the flashlight, thinking of her son prompted her to grow a brain and kick off her clogs. They vanished noiselessly into the void while she felt for rung after rung with her bare feet, the ungodly noise quieting overhead. That's when she felt the unthinkable. Reaching fingers tickled her bare heels. She could not react or she would drop the girl. She kept on, while fingers stroked her ankles and her calves, moving up her thighs to her back, her arms. When her feet hit solid wet, she surprised herself by bursting into tears, releasing the ladder to fall into the waiting hands, extending the child into a net of fingers that took that weight, wanting it, their offering, their fairy child, their gift. Becca's mouth light showed pale yellow on their ghostly, colorless faces, their curious, intelligent eyes, their waiting hands. Sandra Fink is a writer whose published work appears in Posture Magazine and on BrooklynHerborium.com. She is an organizing member of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers and currently at work on a young adult fantasy adventure novel. The Verge of Utopia is her first published work of fiction. Lana Joffrey is an actor, spoken word performer, and writer working in the United States and United Kingdom based in London. She has earned a New York Fringe, IRNE, and Ovation Award in performance, and her verbatim play of women's war stories, Valiant, has traveled the UK and US to critical acclaim. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Special thanks to Alpha Daily Majors. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, 
Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors. Oh,